Hey there guys, sorry to interrupt the episode, but I just wanted to tell you that I got my real estate license in the state of Rhode Island. So if you need to buy, sell, or need help renting a property in the state of Rhode Island, feel free to reach out. Contact me at maxwellwillett at kw.com or call me at 401-487-4477 and I'd be more than happy to help you. Thanks guys and enjoy the rest of the episode. Knowledge's power is where you come to hear people's life experiences to learn from. So, without further ado, let's roll the intro. Stay hungry, stay foolish. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I have a dream. We one day live in a nation. Hello and welcome back to the Knowledge is Power podcast. This is your host, Max Willett. I'm excited for today's episode because this is the first sort of first industry guy we got on the podcast that's in this specific industry. So if you could go ahead and introduce yourself, that would be great. Hi there, Max. Yeah, my name is Andrew Roberts. I'm a visual effects supervisor, uh, originally from the UK, living in uh, Los Angeles and working for Industrial Light and Magic. Great. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming on. I know you're very busy and I'm very excited to talk about your career and uh, sort of how you got to this point in your life, especially hearing that you're from all the way across the pond now in California. It must have a a pretty interesting life story. So if you could go ahead and and basically just tell us your life story, um, that would be great. Sure. Yeah. Well, I was born in London in the late 60s. Um, my parents are from the Caribbean, uh, mum's from Barbados and my father is from Grenada and they met in the, they met in the UK and, uh, I'm one of four children. So raised and educated in London, uh, early days in the UK, uh, wasn't really too sure what I wanted to do sort of career wise, uh, had somewhat of an attitude for art and a bit of a technical mind as well. So when I was sort of taking my exams, you know, it was a little bit of everything, some computer programming, some design and technology. Um, my mother's a retired nurse. And through that, my first job, I worked at a hospital. Um, it was at the time the largest hospital in London called uh, Guy's Hospital. Um, and I worked there as a medical illustrator. So I would do illustrations for professors, um, articles, um, also got into mainframe computers and learning um, how to do some basic programming. And through the um, through the hospital, they arranged for me to take a, a degree in computer programming and systems analysis. So I was introduced to sort of the world of computers um, and I was building up my knowledge of just communicating that way. Um, I moved on to work at an architect's firm. And so that was when some of the graphics started to come in um, where I was learning to be um, a draftsman, um, working with graphics related uh, programs. Um, and it was at that time that I realized that I could do coding and programming, but it didn't come as naturally to me as some of the other guys that were writing code and just bashing it out. And they were, you know, they wrapped up their day at 5 p.m. I was still there 11, you know, o'clock at night, figure, you know, trying to figure out why isn't my code running um, and having to just sort of do a lot of debugging. But um, I found that the graphic stuff I was really into um, and using it was a program called Cadvance, uh, which was one of the early 3D programs, well, 2D for just sort of drafting out um, layouts and then figuring out, you know, sort of for office design and layout, you know, how many seats or tables you could fit into a room. And it was all sort of top down. Through my work at that architect's firm, I was hired at Autodesk. Um, and that's when the world of computer computers really opened up even more to me because they had AutoCAD another program called generic CAD. They had a wide range of programs and they hired me as a technical, um, as a quality control, a QC guy. So I was running programs to just test the bills of AutoCAD and some of the other programs. Um, that didn't take a huge up, didn't take up a huge amount of my time. I was available to do other things. And my manager at the time, a lady called Helen Bell, um, asked me to um, work with this word processing program um, and start 
doing the search and replace because all of the original documentation would be done in the States and then that documentation would be sent to the different regions, whether it was the UK or other parts of Asia or, the, or Africa. Um, and then each of those local branches would then make adjustments. And so for the UK, I'd put the U back in colour and adjust things to British building standards and then we would release an, an additional document um, that then would be shipped out with the software. Um, and I took to that really well. So pretty quickly, I shifted from doing the QC software testing to becoming um, the technical writer for the UK branch. And I enjoyed that. I enjoyed writing. That was something I'd always been into. And so this idea of technical writing and taking complex ideas and translating it into sort of easy to understand, easy to digest and follow along was something that clicked really well with me. Um, and then around the time that um, Autodesk were releasing AutoCAD release 11, they wanted to reduce that lag between when US customers would re receive their software versus the rest of the world. And so their idea was to take all of the technical writers from all over the world and have us all um, fly to Sausalito, which is where the head office was at the time, and where we would all receive the instruction and the information at the same time. We each had little workstations. It was sort of little United Nations of writers there in that hmm. room. And each of us would um, localize the documentation simultaneously and then email back uh, the docs for it to be proofread and then printed, bound and printed and sent out. Uh, so that was really cool because I got to meet lots of different writers and people from various backgrounds all um, at Autodesk's head office. But that was a pivotal sort of branching off point for me because I was introduced to a guy named Gary Yost and he was the founder of something called the Yost Group. And they had developed a number of 3D programs in the past and they were working on the um, an early version of what became um, 3D Studio Max. Uh, which is one of the main programs used for animation and graphics. And I got talking with Gary and he gave me a copy of this program to take back. And he said, hey, just test it and give me your feedback, you know, play with it, see what works, see what doesn't work. Um, and so that began the relationship where I became, became one of his testers, one of his alpha testers for the software. Um, and so when I got back to um, Autodesk in the UK, um, I was really excited about this program because now it's versus the 2D architectural stuff I'd worked with in the past. Now we're seeing these things in three dimensions, you know, uh, with, with shape and volume and you can sort of move lights around and move cameras around. And that was all new to me in um, the late 80s, early 90s. And so they allowed me to transition from being a writer to now being um, a 3D guy where I would doing phone support for customers but then also producing material for uh, marketing material and for trade shows and I was DJing at the time on the side at the weekends and so one of my first things was to build a Technics turntable and sort of a nightclub scene and that got published in uh, one of the magazines and I was just super excited at this idea of being able to build 3D and um, you know have these images that looked realistic um, and while I was doing phone support, I ended up talking to someone that worked at a, one of the largest games companies um, that was one of the games developers in the UK at the time called Bits Corporation. And through me supporting some of the artists and then getting to know the owner, they eventually hired me um, to run the 3D department. And that was quite a shift for me because from being, you know, at Autodesk, you know, sort of being alongside the programmers and understanding, you know, the versions of software they were going to release, you know, and sort of being in that position of knowledge. Now I'm jumping out into the field and saying, okay, I'm going to try being an artist myself, you know, work with people and these sort of really interesting uh, games, 3D games, as we were just branching into 3D at that time, um, early 90s. And I would say that was the beginning of my life as an artist, where um, I'm starting to learn about these concepts that I hadn't because I was a programmer. Now I'm learning about, you know, um, cinematography and lenses and light and composition. And so it was um, necessary for me to educate myself because I technically knew every aspect of this 3D program that I'd been teaching people about. But now sort of when should you use these things and what is sort of, you know, um, the best use of this light or this color or this lens or was something that I sort of had to to pick up on and learn and just be hungry and learn from the other artists and designers and illustrators and animators that were there. Um, I was with that company for a few years and to say that was really the beginning of my growth as an artist and 
one of the guys that worked at that company, um, Koss, he moved ahead of me to uh, Los Angeles. He was doing some games development, but he was also interested in animation um, and just sort of multiple media. And uh, he had this proposition for me a couple of years later that he wanted to start this company and would like to uh, have me come over and help him run it. And so my wife and I made that transition from the UK. We relocated to Los Angeles um, to work with um, this, this company, the Design League. Um, it didn't last um, long. Our, our, our backer sort of initially was interested in games and then he decided to divert off to other things. And so I quickly had to sort of shift from, okay, I'm a company owner to a roll up the sleeves, get back into working as an artist um, and, and make a living, you know, sort of just provide for, for my family. Um, and so I just began working at different companies, um, got to work at a great company, Digital Dimension, um, where sort of I, those were some of the early films that I had a chance to work on, uh, Final Destination 2, uh, get smart, live free or die hard. And as that company grew, I got to grow as an artist, starting from being a 3D artist, learning how to do compositing. So the 3D side of things is, you know, building models and, you know, sort of then applying texture to it and then figuring out motion and animation. And the compositing is taking those images and then incorporating them, adjusting the color, making sure that it balances correctly with the filmed background plate, you know, removing wires or if a, a microphone, a boom mic drops into frame, removing that. So that's the 2D side, the compositing side. And at Digital Dimension, all of the artists had an opportunity to do a number of those things. Um, and from there, I just continued growing and working at different companies um, in LA. But since that move uh, in 97, I moved to um, to the States and it's been it's been my home ever since. Wow. Very interesting uh, life story. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, so did you mention if you went to college or not? Um, I did go to college. Um, okay. And it was a place called um, Lewisham College. At the time, it was called um, Celtic, Southeast London, Southeast London Technical College. Um, and um, yeah, I did a, a national certificate in computer programming and then a higher mm -hmm. national certificate in systems analysis. Um, so that's sort of equivalent to uh, to a degree. Mm, yeah. And, and so obviously your career took a couple of different turns when you were going to college initially or when you were in high school, essentially, um, did you always want to sort of get into VFX and in, in movies and TV or or is that something that just sort of progressed throughout your career? That progressed throughout my career. Um, when I was at school, there wasn't really much of a VFX industry. Mm. I graduated from high school in 1985. So it certainly was a thing out here in Southern California, um, but it wasn't, you know, certainly wasn't a global industry. There were a few mm. people sort of figuring things out, um, but it was relatively early. That industry was early, sort of it was in its infancy um, in the in the early to mid 80s. So it really wasn't an option for me or something I was aware of. Mm. Um, so that's why I kind of was doing the, I was thinking, do I want to be an architect or should I do some programming? Um, and then it was a matter of uh, just fully embracing whatever opportunities were presented to me at the time, um, whether it was the drafting or the programming or, you know, the technical support. Um, and then just sort of going with it, going with the flow um, as things adjusted. Uh, and it really was, I would say, um, when I was at Bits Corporation in London, um, that games company, that's when I realized, oh, man, I can get paid to create graphics. Mm. And so that was sort of still more CGI, more computer generated imagery versus visual effects being where, you know, you're adding elements to a filmed to filmed footage, um, loosely speaking. But, yeah, it was that sort of realization i remember i was doing an animation um, we had a game an aliens game and we were doing this intro where you know the aliens dropship was sort of circling around and coming to land on the planet and uh, i was there late at night just adjusting some textures and really happy with some of the images that i was producing and i just remember that moment like man this is so cool like this stuff comes naturally to me i'm loving what i'm seeing and i'm getting paid to do this so it was mm. around then that I realized that this is what I want to continue doing for, for the rest of my career. Yeah. And 
where do you where do you sort of like draw your creativity from and do you feel like that was the initial point where you sort of discovered it or is it something that you continually like sort of draw from throughout your career if you understand what i'm asking yeah um well there my father was a carpenter um and he introduced concepts of design um, to me and my siblings, my brothers and my sister. Uh, and we've sort of taken that in various ways where my sister used to design clothes and my one brother designs houses and another um, teaches um, robotics at uh, London University. But we're all able to trace that seed of, of design and creativity to those early days when dad might be just sort of sketching something on a piece of paper and that idea of having a concept and then making it was something mm. that we we saw we saw him build a house in the Caribbean and uh, you know he would make various things if it was a, a go-kart or, or a kite um, so I think that was the seed that of of creativity where just that was something that was uh, in, in our family and in our lives from uh, from quite young um, but where I continue to get that from has always been, um, and I, I would say from me realizing that I had a very strong technical grounding, but I didn't have the so much creative, I sort of felt at a disadvantage because I didn't go to art school. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of the artists I was around, I just felt like, wow, they've got all this knowledge I didn't. And so because of that feeling of inadequacy, I was constantly... Um, buying magazines, uh, Cinefix magazine, Cine Fantastique were two that were out at the time that would constantly talk about um, film techniques, art techniques, lots of art books. Because um, this sort of then was really pre-internet or the early days of the internet where mm -hmm. constantly going to bookshops and just whether it was, you know, learning about sculptors or painters and various artists um, and then case studies in magazines like Cinefix, um, that would also be sort of something that would spur me on and, and help me understand how people were getting things done. Um, one other thing that I would point to, which was like an annual source of um, inspiration and creativity for me, um, is an annual conference called SIGGRAPH. It's a special interest, special interest group in computer graphics. Um, and that's been going on since the 80s. My first opportunity to attend SIGGRAPH was in 1993 and it's um just everyone that's involved in anything to do with graphics visual effects cgi animation stop motion um, they would all meet for a week and talk about techniques they would release papers release research and then there would be this thing called the electronic theater where everyone would submit their work um or have the opportunity to submit their work whether it was you know, a studio or some students or some researchers. And there would be a panel that would select the best work of the year. Um, and those pieces then would get displayed um, for a three hour presentation called the Electronic Theatre. And each year I would sort of make an effort to go and I would just see this amazing work, stuff that I'd never even sort of dreamed of, you know, um, and some beautiful work, say from students out of, um, French colleges um, or, or researchers in Tokyo to say all over the world there'd be some really beautiful work along with of, of course studios and commercials and I always found that to be a huge um, boost where I'd be like man let me try that or I wonder how they did that and that would get me really excited sort of going there and seeing initially you'd go there in person to actually experience it but then as you started to get into the late 90s and the 2000s, then a lot more of that was available um, online. But that's also been, that was a great source of inspiration and creativity for me. And nowadays you've got YouTube, there are um, various websites like ArtStation. Um, there are lots of podcasts where people talk about creativity and different techniques that they're using. And so there's a lot more that you can sort of pull from today to just sort of keep yourself hungry and um, curious about um, what the next technique should be or or how to make things look beautiful or real. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you sort of brushed over this um, a little bit ago. Can you explain the difference between VFX and CGI? Because somebody yes. like me, I sort of look at it as the same thing. And hearing what you said earlier, that seems like the wrong thing to think. Right. Yeah, for sure. Great question. And in fact, I'll take it one step further. Often people will talk about 
this stuff they see on screen and sometimes they'll use the word special effects mm. um, and special effects or SFX the abbreviation that relates to um, stuff that will be filmed captured on the day in camera so you think okay. of a controlled explosion or animatronics uh, some puppeteering um, some prosthetics maybe if someone's releasing smoke and mist into an environment and that is filmed along with the actors being there and people interacting with it that's special effects and there will be a special effects supervisor who makes sure that that's done safely and matches the director's needs so that is filmed on the day then when you're talking about visual effects vfx um, that is material that that's work that's done post-production so after Generally speaking, there's sort of a, an exception to that that I'll mention in a second, but generally speaking, visual effects will be after the production is wrapped, they finished filming, they figured out which shots they like, and they will send it to a company to say, okay, we need a dragon here, we need a castle there, you know, there's them, we put a green screen up behind this guy, and we need you to remove, you know, that green screen and make him look like he's in this other environment. Um, that's all visual effects, which is, which happens post-production after the main production then the other term i mentioned cgi computer generated imagery um if you think of something like pixar you know um or shrek where um there's nothing that's filmed um but everything is created the environment the characters their interactions you know the effects in encanto all of that um, has been designed and planned out and um, all of that then gets built, modeled, animated, textured, um, and then rendered and then edited together. And so um, that is CGI, where all of the imagery is done by artists using um, a computer. Um, does that, does that yeah. sort of help? Yeah, okay. Yeah, 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 I think so, yeah. And yeah, just because, I mean, I consider myself a fan of of movies. I, I love, I enjoy, who doesn't enjoy watching movies? Um, it does when it comes to Star Wars, I would consider myself a nerd. Not mm. I like if there's different tiers one through five, I'd say I'm probably like a two to a three. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I don't know everything, but I enjoy, I think, more than the average person does. Um, mm. but uh yeah, you know what's funny is uh my cousin Jimmy, I remember when I was a little kid, sent me an autographed um picture of Darth Maul with Ray Park's signature on it, and I still got that hanging wow. on my wall yeah um but uh <laughs> oh, pretty sweet that's but, awesome so yeah. let me just sorry so that one other thing i was going to mention is um so i'd mentioned that okay you know you've got in-camera special effects and then visual yeah. effects happens after things are filmed um if you've seen the mandalorian or the book of boba fett I'm not sure if you've heard of the term stagecraft or virtual production. I was um, actually, I, I actually just wrote that down. I was going to ask you a specific right. question about the system that they were using. Right. And so what that is, is you're filming, um, you know, you've got characters in this space um, on a stage and there's imagery that's been created prior to the day that you're shooting. It's all planned. Everyone works together on it. Mm -hmm. And um, these stages are called known as the volume um, because it's a huge stage that is the walls are made up of LED screens, the walls and the ceiling. And then that 3D imagery that has been created, you know, along with the filmmakers is then projected on the walls. Um, and so now you've got that combination of your filming characters, you know, you're getting cam cam characters in camera on the day um but then the footage that you're seeing behind them um is visual is, is computer generated material and you're capturing it all together and so um the technology that ilm there are a number of companies um that have virtual production solutions the one that was um innovated for um, mandalorian and, and and other shows um it's called stagecraft um, and that's a complex kind of combination of you've got these walls with this footage. It tracks where the camera is. So it's not just like 2D footage playing back. Mm. It's actually a 3D environment um, using um, a 3D engine, a real-time engine, so that if I have my camera on a track and you, you're at the other end of the hallway and I'm pushing towards you, if you were really doing that in a 3D space, there would be an adjustment in perspective 
And as you move past certain objects, you start to see from the front, now you're seeing the side or the edge of them. Um, because this is a 3D environment that's created, and this technology also tracks where your camera is, where you're looking from, it knows the correct perspective to draw on the walls. So you can move left to right, up and down, and the perspective on the walls will move correctly. So as you're looking through the camera, it really looks like that person um, is there. Um, one of the mm. huge benefits of that is that if you think about sort of traditional green screen, um, that chroma green, that very bright green is a color that computers are easily able to identify and remove so that then you can put something back uh, behind them. And that's still the way that most things are done. But if you think about, say, like the helmet that Mandalorian wears, um, where it's, you know, very reflective uh, in a volume, now you've got this content on the ceiling, you know, on the walls. Um, now you're getting all of these reflections that just work automatically. Um, one of the fallbacks of green screen is that, okay, I'm in a stage and um, I sort of say, okay, well, this is supposed to be daylight. You're supposed to be in a desert. So let's kind of have some warm light from over here um, and we'll put some green behind you and we'll figure it out later. You know, we'll do the best that we can to sort of um, work you into the environment and make it look like you're there. But it's not the same as putting sand on the floor and then having this content on the walls where you've got, you know, the warm sand and then you've got the blue sky and this whole volume is illuminating you. So separate from what's behind you, this volume is an amazing lighting tool where the light, the dappled light, if you're in a forest and so we've actually got trees that are stretching up and the sunlight sort of peeking through the trees that you just get those shadows of the leaves as you're moving around. Um, so that it really just looks like you're there because so much is about lighting on the character, not just, you know, what's behind the person. And so that's virtual production and that's becoming more affordable as LED screens are cheaper and, um, you know, people, th these things are springing up um, all over the place. And ILM have used that for a number of films, um, for the latest Batman movie, The Midnight Sky, as well as a number of um, the shows that you may have seen on um, on Disney Plus, like like uh, mm. Obi Wan Kenobi and um, and Mandalorian, um, so it's allowing you to travel to different places um, and realistically have the characters look like they're there without having to move from that from that stage. So usually, I don't have like like this is a video podcast, but I think just for viewers that are watching it, I think I'm going to play sort of the footage that's available on YouTube of that mm. those screens because I have seen that on youtube before and it's amazing it's yeah. literally just a giant screen with the background and the way i think about it is there's an aquarium near where i live and they have a sort of a ride at this aquarium mm. and and it's sort of theater it's a theater seating and they got a big screen but the seating is on this platform that moves right and then the screen will sort of move with you and it'll change perspectives and you watch like this whale and this giant squid fight or whatever right and you sort of move with the screen mm. like how i think that system works for people that that you know haven't seen it and are listening to the podcast it, it's at the mystic aquarium uh in connecticut and you think all right uh you're the camera is you in this scenario at when you're shooting Mandalorian and the screen is a screen and it sort of changes perspective as you move. If that makes sense. I don't know. That's yeah. sort of, I think about it. I don't know if that makes sense, but <laughs> yeah, I think that's, I think that's a good analogy. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. a good example where that technology is. Yeah. It's based on your viewing angle and what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Content changes. If anyone's ever been to the soaring over California, um, there's a ride um, where it's a similar thing where you're sort of you're in a, a chair and it will tilt and rotate and uh, it's predefined because there's been sort of this footage flying over different parts of California and so mm -hmm. as the camera dips the seat will sort of dip forward yeah a couple of degrees and it's exactly. enough to trick the brain um, sort of with that movement and your mm -hmm. body and brain sort of just the senses in your ears feeling that you're tipping forward and then actually seeing the footage uh, adjust is enough to really sort of convince you, wow, I'm on this, uh, I'm on this ride. Um, I was fortunate enough when I was working at uh, Pixar Mondo, I was a visual effects supervisor there. That's a, another company here in LA. Um, and we had a ride um, for a client in, in China. 
um, where we were flying over this province called Hubei province. And so we got a chance to travel to all of these different locations. We had a drone team where we captured um, all of the data from different angles. And then we created this um, flight through these different regions. Um, and so we spent a year working on the graphics um, for those different locations. Um, and then we came back and then we installed it at the theater where we were programming the number of degrees um, that the, the, the seat, the six degrees of freedom seat would move. Um, and it was just amazing just getting to test that out. And for content that I'd spent, you know, years just, or, or months, I should say, looking at um, just on a screen, now when you, it's this wraparound 160 degree environment and the seat is changing, it really does just treat. Hey there, listeners. Thanks for stopping by to the podcast today. Please, before you're done listening to this episode, leave us a review. If you're on Spotify, you can review now, and you can also review on Apple Podcasts, but if there's any platforms that I'm forgetting about and you can leave us a review, please do so. If you're happening to watch us on YouTube, and if you don't know, you can watch these podcasts on YouTube now, uh, please like and subscribe to the channel and share the episode as well. So thanks for stopping by, everybody, and enjoy the episode your brain where you feel like wow i'm actually i'm actually in this world so um yeah the stagecraft system is similar to that in that you've got content that um is changing based on what your camera does absolutely so were you on set when they were filming with that equipment were you there seeing those giant screens in person um yes so for um for obi-wan kenobi i okay. um, was there um, as the um, brain bar supervisor, and then also as um, I supported the virtual production supervisor, I was the second unit um, supervisor. So working with the filmmakers and making sure that those environments and that content looks as real as it can be. Um, and it is a really great collaborative process between the guys that are building the environment and the production designer and the artists who um, sort of know what the director wants it to look like. Um, so we would go through multiple tests and uh, a pre-light process where we make sure that it looks right on the screen before we shoot so that on the day um, we're there. But yes, I would be at the volume at uh, mm -hmm. Manhattan Beach Studios. Um, we would load the content up, pull it up on the walls. And then um, the team called The Brain Bar is um, uh, five artists who are working in real time. They're working on the real time engine so that if the director says, okay, you know what, can we, uh, can we change the sky or can we move the sun over there? Uh, you know, those hills over there, they look a little bright because it's a real-time engine. Yeah. Um, with the proprietary system ILM has, our artists are able to go in and make those adjustments so that, okay, yeah, is that bright enough? Do you want it a little bit darker? Um, and there's a, also another artist who has an iPad that's connected wirelessly remotely to that system so that um, if we're there in the volume and now, you know, the cinematographer, the director of photography says, okay, I'm getting too much light on this guy here. Is there anything you can do about that? Then they can create like a, a black flag, the sort of a digital equivalent to um, sort of something to create a shadow or a screen. And then they can just sort of place that up on the wall to block out some of the light. And so you're able to, in real time, start to shape the light on the actors and adjust, okay, we want it a little bit brighter, a bit warmer from overhead. And they're able to move lights around or move objects around so that... Mm. The environment you see behind them as well as the way that they're personally lit um is, is really controlled so they've got um the ultimate real-time control on the day yeah interesting so um i want to talk about like the combination of vfx and cgi because that's a mm. thing right like yes. when yeah one of my most favorite movies that has came out recently is the new dune adaptation mm. um of the book by Frank Herbert. Um, I, I I watched the first part of that movie and then I went and read the book and I fell in love with it and I can't wait for the new one to come out in November. Uh, and I remember there's a scene in the movie where um, the, I don't know, I'm going to get technical, but I'm, I mean, I guess not. The bad guys are coming after the good guys and the good guys are running after uh, to get in like one of their ships. And you can see the ship sort of blow up and it looks practical. Like, I don't know if it's CGI or not. I don't know if you've seen the movie. Right. Um, 
So you know when Josh Brolin is running after they're getting attacked to their to their ships and and the it blows up right in front of them. Do you think that 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 scene was completely CGI or did they have like sort of a small model that they had like a controlled explosion or something like that cuz it looks so real or do yeah. you think that's purely CGI? Right. Yeah, so I think you're talking about um the raid that happens at night, right? Like yeah, at night. It's and, it's when yes. the Harkonnens attack the Atreides. I didn't want to get too technical because people will get bored about right. that stuff, but I love it. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Beautiful work. And yeah. yeah, I remember seeing that at a screening and just being really impressed at the level of design that went into, into that. Um, I believe that um those explosions were um computer generated. Yeah. Um and my guess would be that, you know, of course, Josh, Josh Brolin and the rest of the guys that were running towards their ship, um, hoping to take off, um, that, you know, that's a plague that was filmed in the foreground. And mm-hmm. then that terrain was extended. Um, and then, you know, obviously the ships were all um, um, CGI. Um, yeah, I. it's possible. Sometimes there will be elements that are shot that are filmed just because there's sort of so much realism um, in a real explosion and intricacies in that, that um, often, you know, a lot of filmmakers prefer to, you know, shoot an explosion. And then even if they enhance it with additional VFX um, and additional, you know, pyrotech- digital pyrotechnics, the, the heart of it is something that's, that's real. Um, yeah. um, I feel like for... And I should I should go back and look at that to be sure, but my gut tells me that um, that uh, the, the, the majority of that was um, digital. Those were that was digital pyro. Um, it could have been enhanced. There could have been some other elements that they use um, because online there are a lot of elements that you can purchase. Or as I say, the filmmaker may have filmed some elements um, that they mm. incorporated into it. Um, and I know thinking about the breakdowns um, for Dune. Um, that I saw around the time that they try to be as practical as possible. Um, even when the, um, are they called the ornicopter, the, the, the thopters, the they call thopters. them, I think they call them thopters in the movie. Thopters. Right. Yeah. So um, a lot of those elements were originally filmed with a helicopter and then they were mm. so that you've got the, you know, correct um, sort of dust interaction. Um, and there was sort of a lot of realism with something landing and then they would remove that and put the digital um, craft in there. Um, and uh, yeah, there were other things like where they actually had a physical buck that um, the characters would be in and they had the sand screen that surrounded them and they were filming them sort of that thing would move around as they were sort of piloting and then they would take that footage and then now place it in the sky. But a lot of it was practical. And so it is entirely possible that they use some real elements. But of course, there was there was a lot of digital, in, at least mm. a lot of digital enhancement, for like where those bombs would be pushing and yeah, to the shields through, through the through the, the yeah the, the force field yeah um, yeah worth looking up i'm i'm curious to to yeah. do a youtube search on that to see if there's some behind the scenes on on that attack yeah I, that's that's by far like of the past couple of years that's my favorite movie and like i said i'm dying to see that second part come out um yeah. but uh yeah so something else i want i mean so something that you've worked on that has the combination of vfx and cgi i my mind goes to the scenes in mandalorian season one How, you did you work on mandalorian season one i did not no okay um, right my first um ilm production sort of a stagecraft production was obi-wan kenobi oh okay um, um yeah. all right so i'm trying to think so I don't know. Can you come up with an example in the show where you sort of combined it? Because I think that's pretty interesting because it's not only it, during the production, but then you're also having to combine post-production as well. Right. Yeah. So um, a number of the shots um, that were filmed on the volume, they would have been in camera finals, maybe mm. a little bit of color correction afterwards. But, um, you know, if you've got you and McGregor in the foreground and then in the background, you're seeing him work at that whale farm where they were carving up meat and the whale meat um that a lot of those because the background looked great um it already been designed and there were digital people walking around in the background and you know sort of 
things moving around that that shot was just done you know they were happy with them um but then there were other scenes um like the i hope there are no spoilers here um the yeah spoiler uh, alert yeah spoiler <laughs> alert yeah <laughs> Um, the ending battle between um, Obi-Wan and Darth Vader, mm. um, where they're sort of, they're going against each other. So um, that was filmed in the volume and um, there was somewhat of a location um, where there were, so it was that rocky terrain. Yeah. Um, and that was all captured in camera. But then afterwards, uh, there were sort of, when Obi-Wan uses his powers to um, bury Darth with all the rocks. So those were added digitally afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, there was additional enhancement with sort of like other atmosphere and smoke. And there were other little details that the director, Deb Chow, wanted to get in there at the end. She was like, oh, that area looks a little bit barren. So let's add something there and there. Um, but that would be a good example where we filmed it, um, filmed the characters, had somewhat of a background, which was in the volume, but then afterwards, sort of the rocks and all of the effects that were part of the battle, those were added um, in post. So when it comes to those those effects, right, did you guys have any um, like say in the terrain that they were fighting in or was it already written into the script where they would sort of be and what sort of terrain it was? Or did you guys get creative freedom on that? Um, it's a it's a mixture. It's really a collaborative process mm -hmm. um, where the director and um, then the visual effects supervisor and then a the production designer and the art director and that whole team are all working together. It's mostly going to come from the director where, okay, she knows the action and she knows what she wants to happen. And then she's working closely with um, um, people like Doug Chang, uh, who did a lot of the art and the production design for that. Um, and I'm forgetting Todd's last name, but there was another production designer that they worked together to figure out the look. Um, but what we did and the way that um, ILM works is they will have these virtual art department meetings. And that's sort of another aspect of virtual production. It's not just being in the volume, but they're using computer technology prior to that. So that, okay, first you've got sort of the written word and then you've got you know concept art and sketches um, and then pretty quickly, artists will build, you know, a 3D version of that in Unreal Engine. Um, but then the director and the director and everyone, they'll put on their goggles and they will actually do um, a virtual art department scout where they're in the environment looking around. Um, and they'll say, OK, can we move that over here? And, you know, we need some more rocks there. And as part of that process, um, the art team will be like, OK, you know, we'd recommend this you know, and, um, you know, let's have less of that. In, and so our recommendations are incorporated into it um, mm. where it's a really a collaborative process where, you know, if she, if she said, okay, I want, you know, like 2000 people, you know, sort of like parasending out of the sky at this point. Um, and if it's just not technically possible or realistic or within the time constraints and budget, then that's an opportunity for the visual effects supervisor and the team to say, you know what, we can give you four guys um, and, you know, we can do this and that and just work together as a team to figure out, you know, what would be the most appropriate way. Um, so, yes, it is a collaboration where um, our input and our feedback uh, is taken into consideration. And then even once, so they sort of say what they want and then we're taking her requirements and then building that environment. Once those that note is given to an artist, the artist who's actually building it, then they still have quite a bit of freedom themselves to be like, okay, these are the parameters I've been given. I know that it's this barren moon and I know that it's supposed to look like this. Um, this research that I've done on the side, you know, I've seen this lava rock and it's got some very interesting structure and I'd like to incorporate some of that. So um, sometimes you might sort of present the version that's been requested, but then give them an alt to be like, you know, I was trying this other stuff and I'm really excited by this look. And so with, you know, Ireland being a very open place where they encourage um, artists to get involved and to, um, you know, put their creative ideas forward, um, there's a lot of opportunity for artists to to do that and actually, you know, um, give their take on, um, on what's being requested. Because if um, you and I could sort of see a phrase, you know, elephant on a bike, and if we were to both draw that, it's, <laughs> look completely different right you know? mine would definitely be the worst <laughs> <laughs> and so there are so many ways of interpreting you know like any given 
um, sort of direction. And so uh, even with some pretty clear direction or specific direction, there's still some latitude for artists uh, to put themselves into the work, which is which is also pretty rewarding. So, yeah. All right. So I got I got I got a good idea here and you let me know what you think about this. So I'm looking at some of the, the productions that you've worked on uh, and I'm going to ask you I'm going to ask you the series or the, the movie and sort of your favorite scene that you worked on in the movie is that okay, okay? all right yeah all right so let's just start off with with obi-wan the obi-wan series what was your your favorite scene that you got to work on in that series favorite scene is where um the jedi temple um is getting stormed and mm-hmm. there's um um yeah the, the storming of the jedi temple it's an open yeah. and then you sort of you have the younglings um who are being defended by one of the the jedi masters yeah um and yeah that was a beautiful combination of um pretty complex camera work on the volume so there was an additional corridor that was built on um to the mouth of the volume um so that we had the steady cam operator moving backwards as uh, stormtroopers and various people were coming in um, and attacking. Um, and then we had an amazing stunt woman who was, you know, parrying and jumping around and sort of fending off um, the, the the blasters. Mm. Um, and so then he sort of panned around and followed her in. Um, and, you know, you had squibs going off and there was sort of lots of special effects on the day. Um, and then she gets shot and she crumples to the ground and then the younglings um, surround her. One of them says, you know, what should we do? And then one of them says, we run. Now, as they were talking, the steady cam operator then attached. So he was walking with the camera and capturing all of this action. And then he attached the camera to a crane during the conversation. So that as the kids got up and then started to run down the pathway, that now this crane seamlessly moves up and this is all one continuous shot. So it's boom, it booms up high as they're running off. Um, and so just working with the team and figuring out, okay, um, what do we need our 3D environment to do? Um, you know, and how do we accommodate uh, capturing all of this movement? Um, it was it was a, a complex day. It was exciting. It was a lot of fun to be there during the filming of that. Mm-hmm. And then moving into post-production where you we just added layers of, you know, sort of various um, uh, Jedi um, fighting off the invasion on different levels that was ad- added in post. Um, and then also the younglings, they were running along this little corridor, but the volume only lasts a certain distance. And so then we had to hand off to um, a group of digital um, actors that continued the run up the pathway. Um, so that was very, very rewarding to see from filming on the day to what it ended up with and all the additional layers. I would say that that was, um, that was, it was definitely up there for me. All right. Yeah, cool. So the next movie I want to, well, there's a lot of great ones in here, but I think just for the sake of time, I want to pick ones that are, I don't know. I, this is kind of selfish that I find interesting, <laughs> Sure. Um, yeah. but I'm looking at all these and I, it's very, very amazing resume here. You know what? I'm going to ask that, you know, there's obviously some other ones in here, but Gemini man was something that was interesting because mm. you had a whole character in there that was de-aged yeah. right so could you explain sort of you, i don't know your favorite scene that you got to work on in that and maybe that process that would be pretty interesting too yeah so with gemini man i was working at a company called scanline visual effects and all of the digital um so they did an amazing young will there were sort of three versions of right there was will smith and then there was the younger one and there was the youngest one right um mm. All of that work was done um, at another facility um, at Weta. Um, Scanline is a company that were really intrigued by what Ang Lee was trying to do because it was um, stereo, it was um, high frame rate, and then it was very high resolution. Uh, if I recall, it was like 8K, 60 frames a second stereo. Um, so the work that we did, uh, that Scanline did, um, there is a a shot where there's a sequence where um, uh, Will Smith is hiding inside a liquor store and the guys pull up and they're, they've got a rail gun and they, they just sort of tear that thing apart. 
Um, and I don't know if you remember that scene and they're sort of hiding and then the bullets are just sort of like pulling the, just completely decimated. Is that towards the end of the movie? It's towards the end. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I've seen it a couple of times, but yeah, I think I remember that scene. And so we had to recreate this, um, this digital liquor store, like, um, and so all of the shelves, um, the visual effects supervisor was very specific about um, the rounds that were being used and the speed that they travel. And based on the camera it was being filmed with, you know, sort of what the motion blur should look like and just having sort of all of that chaos of all of the bullets ricocheting. It was um, a really complicated sequence just to completely destroy that. I mean, we had bottles of wine and spirits um, that we had to build digitally and so that, you know, liquid is flying out as these bottles are shattering and, you know, um, just sort of atomized glass and 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 rum and so on. Um, and so there were a bunch of sequences that we worked on for that movie scattered around, but that was sort of like the concentrated effort was really for that, um, the gun tearing, tearing that apart. So that was a film that I would say the majority of the work, is, I mean, all of that amazing um, digital character work um, was actually um, handled by by another facility but um yeah the the tearing apart of the liquor store and all of the work we did on that was um was heavy lifting just because mm. you know systems aren't really designed to be working at 60 frames a second you know 8k stereo so um it was sort of like a technical challenge as well as sort of creatively making it interesting and exciting all right cool so the next one that sticks out is i i've been just scrolling through here and you got to work on avatar yes um okay. yeah very the original, the original, the, the, the original Avatar. Yeah. Yes, and I was at a company called Prime Focus, um, and again, it was I was at a vendor that got to work on um, like a smaller section, so I didn't get to work on the Navi or any of those characters. Um, but the sequence we worked on is the first time when the military um, they decide that they're going to go and start attacking the what was the name of the tree the. Um, the life tree or something life, like that. Right, yeah. And so you have this scene, there's a number of shots where um, sort of all of the crafts uh, are taking off and then peeling off and heading off in that direction. And you're the camera's panning left to right and you're sort of seeing the military move around and, and various craft um, fly over as it's sort of, it's this, um, you know, leaving for battle scene. Um, and uh, ILM and a bunch of other vendors were working um, on that. But at uh, Prime Focus, we were we were using um, 3D Studio Max, 3DS Max um, for that. And uh, their tool set was more Maya based. Um, and so there was a lot of work converting the assets from Maya to 3DS Max and then making sure visually that everything looked the same. Um, and then, yeah, texturing these craft, having the characters, you know, have all of the detail, um, applying motion capture to the people that were running across the tarmac. Um, so that, that was a lot of fun just working on this. This, this really complex, dense scene with lots of aircraft and lots of people and Atmo and all of that. Very cool. All right. So the next one, I know this is sort of corny, but I'm going to ask this one for my mom because I know she loves this movie, and that is Elf. Uh, so yes. what did you do on Elf? Um, so Elf, I was at um, Digital Dimension back then, and that was, I mentioned um, that back then artists had to do a number of things, um, and as things as sort of films got more complex you start to get a bit more um broken down into okay are you an animator or are you an effects artist or do you just model um but back then at this company that we were at we did a little bit of everything so for elf um i got to track shots so figuring out what the camera was doing in order to add additional things into the shot and then do animation and um and and then compositing so scenes where uh will ferrell is he's getting pelted with snowballs or he yes he, i remember that, that snow scene, scene. Yep. yeah all the all the digital snowballs um mm -hmm. uh yeah all those scenes uh, and then he throws it really fast exactly yeah <laughs> and so those were all animated and we got to you know sort of track those shots add the snowballs and to make sure the impacts looked good with you know sort of with breaking snow so mm -hmm. uh it was all those scenes cool um yeah, so that that's really interesting. And I want to ask you, so what were your favorite projects that you got to work on throughout your career? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, let's see. Um, I mean, I should scroll through and have a look at uh, let's see. my favorite. 
I really enjoyed um, Get Smart, I would say. So that was from 2008. Um, and that was, there were some shots that we did. Digital Dimension did quite a lot of work on that. And there was a Cessna um, where they were sort of trying to get to uh, the opera house to foil some, I forget the details of, you know, mm -hmm. the guys got to get, they've got to get, you know, to this place in time. Um, and they're in this, you know, this small plane. Um, and uh, it was a lot of fun just figuring out, um, okay, how do we make this plane's movements realistic? And we were working with some tools that allowed you to um, use a game controller to sort of fly the plane and you could, you know, sort of be affected by, you know, sort of wind patterns and, and, and that kind of stuff. So that allowed us to set the animation for the plane, but then taking it to that level of, okay, um, let's, you know, capture what was the environment like? What should the sky look like? How can we get this thing as detailed as possible? I mean, this plane was modeled down to the rivets, you know, and the metal panels that it would be constructed from um, in order for the lights as a light passed over the surface for, you know, specular highlights to break up realistically. Um, and so that was, I would say, sort of one of the first movies where we were really trying to get as close to photorealism as possible or what was sort of what was possible for us at the time. Um, and that stuff turned out, it, it turned out really great. So that was, that was one that was um, really, really rewarding. Um, a movie that was sort of just out there, kind of crazy in some of the action, um, but was a lot of fun was Fast Five. Oh, okay. Um, and that was um, set in Brazil. And there was a scene now where um, Dom and his guys uh, are dragging um, a safe um, behind their Dodge Challenger and they're going across this bridge um, to, to towards Rio. Um, and there was a combination of, there were a couple of safes that they actually built um, on wheels um, so that they could actually film them on set. And there was another safe that could sort of like withstand some tumbling. But so for the ones with wheels where it would be sort of you know, filmed with the car dragging it, then we had to drop those down to the ground and add sparks. Um, in order to really, you know, sort of get convincingly add that friction. Um, but then there's a pretty crazy scene where, you know, sort of like he he turns the car into a spin and causes the um, the, the safe to tumble and take out the bad guys. And so um, a lot of it was sort of over the top in terms of the action, but it was a lot of fun just working with these, you know, these photorealistic vehicles and trying to get this safe to look as realistic as possible. Um, and say, you know, like Fast Five, or the, the Fast series, you know, has got more and more um, ambitious and fantastic um, each, you know, each version. Um, but that was a, a really good one for just uh, sort of crazy fun. Um, cool. Snow, Snow White and the Huntsman, we worked on oh, the okay. for that. And um, so that was where, uh, there's this army that is sort of they the knights shatter and they're sort of all made of um, obsidian and um that was good just for sort of getting into complex particle systems and dynamics um and you know you really need to sort of get the technical founding but at the end of the day it's got to look right you know and so on top of uh, the shattering and the fragmentation um is then you know getting the correct lighting and depth of field and just making sure that um, that these images look as good as all the other, you know, frames um, that were that were shot. So um, I'd, I'd point to that one as a as a fun one too. Yeah. It, I, another question I have for you: Were there any actors that showed like a specific interest in what you were doing, or sort of like hovered over your shoulder and asked questions? Or I know that that you guys are sort of separated and might not be in the same place at the same time, but was there anybody in particular, like when you were on set that would ask you like, Hey, how are you going to do this? What are you going to do to that? Was there, was there anybody in particular that sticks out? Not really. As you say, no. they normally sort of keep, um, and, and again, just in terms of traditionally the time where, you know, actors, they spend their three to five months on set and then they wrap their mm. off to the next thing. And then, sort of the the, the, um, the VFX vendors pick up later. But even on set, um, they usually really focused on their character, their lines, yeah. you know, um, and, and often for as a VFX supervisor or an on-set guy, um, you've just got so much that you're trying to be prepared for, yeah. um, you know, planning in terms of measurements and, you know, um, do we have that information? What lens are they using? Trying to capture as much information as possible so that, 
um, you know, when the team starts working, they've got all the information that they need to, um, to, to get a job done. So, yeah, I haven't had too many interactions, a couple here or there, but nothing to the extent where, um, yeah, n- nothing major, because as I say, mm. but sort of everyone's focused on just their job and just trying to trying to get it done. Absolutely. Have you ever been on a set of a movie or TV show where you were just sort of like blown away that you were there able to work on this production? What what movie comes to mind or TV show? Yes. Um, well, there's a show that I, I, it's not released yet. So um, oh. maybe, maybe we'll have a, a follow up um uh, later this year is but it an ilm sh- is it a disney property show um it's it's a show that ilm is working on okay um, yeah and yeah there were times where i was just like pinch myself i can't i can't actually believe i'm i'm here so you can't um, even say what the title is no um, uh but yeah so um but I, I did get a chance to support. Um, I was working alongside John Knoll. Um, they were doing reshoots for Jurassic Dominion. Um, mm-hmm. And this was for some of the interior scenes in the lab um, when things are starting to kind of go sideways. Um, and they just needed to get pick up some additional um, dialogue uh, just to sort of fill in for the film. Um, but getting to work with uh, closer with John Knoll, who's an absolute legend in you know, created Photoshop and was one of the innovators um, just in terms of visual effects in general. If you ever get a chance or your audience gets a chance to watch um, the Light and Magic documentary on Disney Plus, um, that talks about the inception of Industrial Light and Magic, um, sort of how George Lucas started off with Star Wars and the subsequent movies and the shift from practical effects to visual effects when computers started to, um, you know, become more in use. And and John is is featured um, in that. Um, and yeah, so he's a, you know, there are lots of legends of visual effects, but John is is definitely one that I look up to. And so he he needed some additional support for a couple of days while they were doing reshoots. And I was like, yep, uh, I'm in. You know, mm. um, was able to, um, yeah, to sort of like hear more about his background and life story so that was sort of like a not so much for that I mean the film was great it was good to be there um to, to help you know finish those scenes for Jurassic but for me personally it was really exciting just to um, get to work a little closer uh, with Mr. Noll and hear about you know um, how he got into the industry so um, I, I'd recommend uh, um, anyone who's able to watch the Light and Magic documentary to check that out because it's pretty fascinating mm. um just talking about the early days of visual effects and how it came to be yeah so all right i understand we're running out of time so um i just want to finish off the podcast i finish this every podcast off with this question uh if you could leave one piece of advice to the listener could be about business you know visual effects life anything you want it to be what sort of advice would you leave to the listeners um yeah that's a great question let's see if i can keep it down to to just one piece of advice or two. Um, I would say I would recommend to stay hungry, to fully invest in whatever it is you're doing now. Like often, and I've had conversations with students that I'm mentoring where they're not sure what they want to do in the future. Um, And for me, that industry didn't exist at the time. Like visual effects certainly didn't look anything you know, like it does now when I started out. Um, but just sort of going for something that I was interested in at the time and fully committing myself to it, but then staying hungry and curious and interested and being willing to learn. Um, so for me, it was, you know, taking in those art books and learning about cinematography and design um, then positioned me for when the next thing came, I was able to then take advantage um, of that. So, um, yeah, I would say don't worry too much about sort of the future and what the future will hold, but really sort of be very present and mm. to, you know, sort of put your energy into sort of doing the best that you can at, at where you're currently at. Um, and I think the, the future is very exciting, you know, when we think about where visual effects currently is and computer graphics, but then we think about some of the new things that are coming out. So there's, 
uh, you know, like chat GPT. There's a lot of sort of AI based yeah. things mid journey, right? Where yep. um, you're going to be able to have these tools produce images for you that um, who knows where the convergence of these things will, um, where they will be five years from now, 10 years from now. Absolutely. Um, so it's hard to really sort of plan or know, okay, it's this job is going to exist. Um, but really focusing on the fundamentals and just sort of rounding yourself out as much as possible with the tools that you can now. Um, and as I say, being hungry, being curious um, will sort of position you for uh, for what's next. Yeah. I have a funny story about chat GPT I'd, really quick. I am part of a networking group and we were supposed to come up with like a Christmas jingle about our business. Um, and I have a product development company as well. And I completely forgot and went to the meeting and had no jingle. So I went into chat GPT and I have a lot of 3D printers. So I said, Christmas jingle about 3D printers. <laughs> and it generated this awesome jingle and I used it. <laughs> and it was, wow. yeah, like out of nowhere. This, That's amazing. This AI was able to create that. And um Thank you, ChatGPT. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I've seen some great examples um, on Twitter where people mm. have sort of, they will sort of say what the prompt is or what the use case is and then the end result. Um, it's it's pretty amazing. And this is just sort of, you know, it's pretty early days, you know, mm. we'll think about sort of how it will be able to automate and simplify things for us a couple of years from now. It's, it's pretty exciting. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, thank you very much for taking time out of your day to talk. I've had a great time uh, talking to you and hearing your life story and your career. It's been amazing. Uh, my pleasure, Max. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for inviting me on. Absolutely. And thank you guys for listening to the Knowledge is Power podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram. And if you want to get episodes weeks before they're posted on uh, widely available platforms, subscribe on Patreon for as little as $3 a month and get early access to episodes. So thank you again, Andrew. Thank you everybody for listening to the podcast. Thank you guys. And I will catch you in the next one.